We are back in the world of SaaS. This is Sasta with me, Harry Stebbings, and we're diving straight into the show today with the first for the podcast, the first ever Chief Strategy Officer we've had on the show. And they do not come more respected and experienced than our guest today, John Meller. John Meller is the Chief Strategy Officer at Domo, the company that allows you to leverage business intelligence at scale to empower your team with data. And prior to that IPO, Domo raised funding from some of the best in the business, including Benchmark, Founders Fund, Andreessen Horowitz, Greylock, and IVP, to name a few. As for John, Prior to Domo, he served as Vice President for Strategy and Business Operations for Adobe's digital experience business, driving more than $3 billion in annual revenue. John joined Adobe through the company's acquisition of Omniture in 2009, where he served as Executive Vice President of Marketing, driving all marketing efforts. But before we move into the show today, I want to tell you a story that I'm sure most of you are well too well aware of. You've spent the last two weeks working on that big proposal. 14 days and 44 cups of coffee later, you're finally finished. The proposal's due by the end of the day and it's seven minutes to midnight. Here's the problem. When you go to submit it, you find out that your corporate password just expired, you're locked out of your account, the IT team is fast asleep, and the clock is ticking. MoveWorks takes the suspense right out of this story. MoveWorks is an AI platform that lives on messaging tools like Slack and Microsoft Teams. You chat with their AI to unlock your account, to get access to software, to find troubleshooting answers, and more wherever you are and whenever you need help. MoveWorks understands your request no matter how you phrase it. Then autonomous resolves the issue in seconds. That proposal submitted within six minutes to spare. Check out moveworks.com to see how AI delivers instant IT support to employees anywhere and anytime. And speaking of seamless work there with MoveWorks, you have to check out Cordoba, the leading AI writing assistant built specifically for business needs in mind. These days, literally everyone within a company writes content. And because of this, it's hard for everyone to stay aligned and maintain consistency. With Cordoba, you can customize writing guidelines to your unique brand and get everyone at your company to write with the same style, terminology, and brand voice whenever and wherever they are writing content. For Sasta listeners, Cordoba is providing a 25% discount off the first year of their starter plan. You can sign up for a free trial and get this offer by visiting cordoba.com forward slash Sasta. And finally, we spend so much time lead sourcing, but fundamentally, the quantity of leads does not matter unless you can convert them. And one of the best ways to do that is to collect and display reviews from your past customers. That's where reviews.io come in. Reviews.io not only collects reviews from your happy customers, but it is also able to help you publish these reviews on Google and on your social media platform of choice. Reviews.io is a fully API-driven solution that can be fully customized around your company requirements, and Reviews.io is packed full of useful features, but one that I found the most useful is that they're able to tell me who my most powerful brand advocates are via the Reviews.io dashboard. Reviews.io is used by over 5,000 companies, including Brex, Opendoor, and Carfax, to name a few. As a special offer, Reviews.io is giving one month free, no risk to all listeners. Just use the promo code Harry, that's H-A-R-R-Y. However, that's quite enough from me, so now I'm very excited to hand over to Domo's Chief Strategy Officer, John Meller. Good, that's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. John, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show today. I've heard so many great things from many prior guests. So thank you so much for joining me today, John. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Not at all, but I would love to kick off today with a little bit of background on you. So tell me, John, how did you make your way into what I call the wonderful world of SaaS? And how did you come to be Chief Strategy Officer at Domo today? I got into SaaS before I knew I was getting into SaaS. This started back in 2003 when I joined Omniture, which was an analytics company founded here in Utah. 
And they were trying to do the very best that they could for customers and helping them understand what was the traffic like on their website, who was coming, how often do they come back, what do they look like, etc. And the most natural way to deliver that information to customers was through an online interface where we would capture all the traffic, all the information, synthesize it, and just deliver it to those customers via a web UI. And little did we know, we were part of the SaaS movement. It was back when we used different words for it, things like managed software, application service provider. And that was kind of my entree into SaaS. And that year when I joined in 2003, Omniture did $8 million in revenue. And we later took our first round of VC money. Then we took the company public and did a secondary and eventually sold it in 2009 to Adobe for $1.8 billion. And at that point, the company was doing a little over $300 million in revenue. And then I stuck around Adobe for nine years. Adobe was a fantastic experience. And we did about $10 billion in acquisitions and grew that business to $3.5 billion in annual revenue. And that kind of gets us to today. I have to ask, close to 10 years at Adobe at the forefront of really such a transformational time for the company, John. What were your biggest takeaways from the time with Adobe? And how do you think that time impacted your operating mentality today with Domo? Adobe was a great experience. That company is just phenomenal. The leadership team there is amazing. And we saw them go through a couple of pretty big transformations. Number one is they didn't really have an enterprise software selling group when they bought Omnitrip. So that route to market was something they were very interested in creating. So we saw them and worked with them to develop that enterprise route to market. But then probably the biggest transition was watching Adobe transition into the subscription business model with its creative cloud product, as it's known today, and going through the process of selling boxed software in stores to selling online delivery of the application. It's crazy. I think it was 2011 when they did the annual analyst meeting and they dropped their revenue forecast by $100 million and the stock popped. <laughs> we thought, what in the world just happened? But clearly, Wall Street and the Adobe team knew the benefit of a subscription business model and the transition into SaaS. So it was great. I think in terms of the, the takeaway that I got from Adobe personally was I've always been a strategy person. I'm very interested in the big picture. What's the context in which we're operating? How is that driven by macro trends, etc.? And I would build these nice strategic presentations and go into the CEO and the leadership team and present these. And the CEO would kind of lean back and say, well, John, that looks great. That makes a lot of sense. So what are you going to do about it? And that was a takeaway for me because it taught me that strategy that's not connected to operations is just not as useful, nearly as useful as it should be to an organization. So I think my takeaway was strategy is incredibly important, but until you connect it to what the business is actually doing and the operations, then you haven't created real change in an organization. Can I dive in and ask, in terms of kind of the connection of that strategy, how do you create that connection cross-functionally across the company so effectively? What works, I guess, in terms of your experience in connecting with the individual heads of function to imbue the strategic thoughts that you have to them? There are two ends of it that I found. One is bringing people along when you're building the strategy. So you do your best to win the hearts and minds of the folks that are really going to be involved 
in executing the strategy once it's baked. And I'm a firm believer that no single person owns strategy. If they do, then it's probably going to start and stop with them. So it's a little bit of a herding cats kind of situation where you have to bring people along with strategy and bring the best ideas from various groups and do your best to synthesize those concepts into a strategy that people buy into. So that's on the front end. On the back end, the way that we structured the team was that I also ran the business operations team. So effectively, my team controlled the weekly agendas for executive staff meetings. We controlled a lot of how the pieces came together and what were the operational metrics that we built to report up to the CEO. And that drove this cadence of alignment on a weekly, quarterly basis basis that helped us operationalize what we had bought off on on strategy. And we did that on a rolling annual basis. So each quarter we would reevaluate strategy and hopefully not change it too significantly and keep it for at least a year. But that process seemed to work pretty well for us. Can I ask another question related to the connection of strategy to the operations? How do you think about and how do you advise founders on when is the right time to hire a chief strategy officer and how they know that it's right for their company? I look at the evolution of how I got the strategy role at Omniture. I certainly didn't start that way. I started out running marketing and then I was running the partner ecosystem. And what happened was you started to see all of the value add that partners were delivering or certain technologies were delivering into our platform at Omniture. And that started to inform our roadmap, things that we would work with partners to build and things that we wanted to go buy. So it evolved into the acquisition roadmap. So we would go buy companies that had been partners for a couple of years and we had seen proven value. And it became this connection with the CEO where he and I just had a rapport. We were kind of finishing each other's sentences, but not in uh, too much of drinking each other's Kool-Aid way because that tends has got to exist or you don't move forward. So I think the strategic role for a founder has got to be an organic evolution. A founder just can't turn over strategies. Founders are where they are because they're good at strategy and they have great vision. The strategic role has to be an amplification or a way to put structure around the strategy and tie it down to operations. Yeah, no, no, I definitely agree with you in terms of being an extension and kind of aligned with the CEO. I do want to dive into kind of the macro environment today though and the the Twitter sphere is alight with the sectors that will be most impacted by COVID, largely pronounced by VCs, I have to admit. But when we chatted before, you said to me that when it comes to COVID, it will do more for digital transformation than any other C-level-led initiative. First, why do you think COVID is such an accelerant? Well, I saw a meme on the internet a few weeks ago that <laughs> said, what will drive your digital transformation strategy the most? Is it the CDO? Is it the CIO? Or is it COVID? And that kind of puts a fine point on it, but it has Digital transformation, in my mind, has been inevitable. And it's a journey that organizations have been on for decades. And the technology simply just catches up. And then some kind of forcing function happens to accelerate adoption of that technology. And I think that's one of the situations we're in now. I mean, it's not dissimilar to a Y2K moment. You think back in the late 90s, ERP was a bold, if not a risky proposition for companies. But then as you got 
closer to Y2K, the imminence of that event and the potential impact of that event drove a massive acceleration in ERP companies. And that market grew four or five fold in five years from 95 to 2000 because you got people out of the intellectualizing of what technology could do to them or for them into the sheer business environment need to compete or to survive. And that's where we are now. We're in a different world. It's a couple of decades later, but digital transformation is inevitable and there's either a carrot or a stick. And you've seen a lot of early adopters and companies that are leaders in their markets go through the digital transformation process and get closer to customers through digital interactions, become more personal, do this in a mass personalization with individuals or make data more available inside their companies. And that has happened with leaders in their industries because they've been ahead of the curve. Well, now, now you have this crashing wave of change that it is incredibly clear that if companies don't change and drive more agility into their business, understand things very, very rapidly and make changes very rapidly, that survival is a real question. Not just thriving, but survival. So what cool ways do you think we'll see them drive agility into their business operations, into the differing functions within their business? I'm super intrigued by that. So I think the first is just the speed with which you have to make decisions, right? And as a CEO or any kind of line of business leader, decision-making is a function of information. You have to understand how is your business working? What are the drivers of your business? What is the operational health of your business? And that is primarily driven a data exercise. And if you think of simple questions you need to answer as a line of business person, those questions have to be informed by different parts of the organization, different operational systems. Let me give you an example. So Pep Boys is a customer that we deal with a lot at Domo, and they are a retail company, have big retail spaces, and they try and drive promotions through the retail. But if you don't understand inventory and the inventory terms and availability at the store level, and then have those store managers be able to report at a regional level, if you can't then see that at a CEO level, then you're just blind. You can't really understand performance of a store in the context in which you need to understand it. And so I think that the access to information and putting it in the hands of people who can make decisions quickly is one of the key transformations that's underway right now. And COVID is absolutely driving that. Yeah, no, listen, I totally agree with you in terms of being the catalyst for change. I guess with that in mind, though, and with COVID being the core accelerant, the question being there is, is it like digital transformation and change management a technology challenge or is it actually a cultural challenge given the realization that we have with COVID? You know, it's probably equal parts. I would say it is 50-50 because the technology is so key to just making the systems work, but it's a need a horse to water kind of situation where the technology can make the system available or make the actions available, the information, the decision support available. But what it can't do is get the end user to actually adopt it. So you see things in companies, you know, we've got a large retailer that uses our system to actually gamify the process of unloading trucks at the loading dock. So you wouldn't think about that as a business intelligence process or even a data-driven process because the individual's on the loading dock don't feel like they're logging into a BI tool. They're using an app 
that's helping them log boxes offloaded off of the truck and comparing their performance against the team that's coming right after them or before them. And that is a great example of using technology in the right way to drive a behavioral change and a usability change amongst the frontline people who need access to data. I mean, executives in the boardroom have been pushing transformation for a decade or so. What they haven't successfully yet done is help the people on the front lines, the employees that are behind the counters or at the loading docks or driving the trucks around or restock shelves at convenience stores. They haven't put the information in their hands in a way that they can actually make a decision that makes their life better. I mean, I've got so many things to unpack from that. I I guess my question is, in terms of really getting into the hands of the core consumers, how do you think about the mistakes that people often make when selling to CIOs and then that crucial adoption intersection between the CIO and the end consumer? Where do you think the mistakes that the core vendors make when trying to make that bridge and transition? I think it's easy to to stay in the boardroom or in in the corner office when you think about digital transformation. And the hurdle that people need to get over is that while that is where key decisions and direction need to be set, it's not really how the business grows. The business grows when employees can make decisions, the big decisions or the small decisions with data at their fingertips. And in a form that doesn't just look like, okay, I've logged into a spreadsheet, I can see that you know margin of product X is better than margin of product Y. But it's, let me give you an example. So we have a customer that is responsible for restocking shelves in convenience stores. And the people who do that restocking drive the trucks around with all the chips and soda and thing on the truck. And they have to make the decision of whether to put product A ahead of product B. And the real impact of that decision for that individual is how much commission are they going to make. And the top level office, the corner office, can set commission structures. But what you really want to do is change behavior and give the tools so that the behavior change is obvious and easy for the individual needing to make the behavior change. So it's not just about information. It's about the apps that you can put on the device, the phone, the tablet, whatever device that individual is using at the moment of time when they're making a decision. And that's where you start to infuse the digital transformation as fertilizer deep, deep into the organizational roots. Can I ask you, how do you think about the effectiveness of professional services and training days when vendors come in and really spend time with the teams on the ground? How do you think about the effectiveness of those in driving that core kind of bottoms up adoption? And then I guess subsequently, should that be charged for or should that be part of the core offering? This, I think, gets to a key point about what customers want to buy. Customers want to buy outcomes. In a very real sense, they kind of don't care how much the software costs versus the services. They just need the outcome comes and the technology change and the behavioral change that comes along with it. You know, the challenge from a vendor standpoint and just being realistic is that every customer is a snowflake and you end up with a situation where professional services may be a very heavy part of one implementation and configuration and maybe very light in other cases. So I don't know that there's an easy answer from a vendor side other than to say, recognize that customers want to buy outcomes and 
and don't make it too difficult to buy the outcomes when you're trying to price or configure these systems. Speaking of kind of the customers that want those outcomes, we have to acquire those customers first. And in B2B and often in enterprise, they're largely acquired often by events and events have been so effective over the last few years. But with COVID, that's obviously now a real challenge. So I guess from the more macro perspective is how will a 100% virtual event environment impact physical events when and maybe if they return? Yeah, I think we've learned a lot with digital events and Domo specifically. Gosh, our Domo Palooza event, our annual user conference was March 18th. So you know, we were right in the eye of the storm. We decided to make Domo Palooza a 100% online event on February 28th. So we had 12 business days to make that transition, <laughs> which was very painful. So I understand the pain of people having to make that transition. But you learn a lot and there's great things that come out of a 100% online event. For example, reach can be extraordinary. You can reach people with these marquee events, multiples of the people that would be able to buy a ticket and take three or four days off of work and fly to the location you're going. So that's one big benefit. The flip side, the con of it is you really sacrifice a lot of intimacy. And events give you an opportunity to hang out with people, to go to the bar and have a drink, to have breakfast, to enjoy the entertainment, a concert or whatever. And in enterprise software, relationships are such a key part of the selling environment that we need a way to maintain those. And I think we've probably got a six to nine month window where things will be 100% online. And you'll see the enterprise software companies that have built, have invested in really great relationships with customers, because I think they'll have the staying power to keep those relationships alive over that six to nine month period without face-to-face contact. But I think after that, we will hopefully be able to return to a physical in-person event environment. But I think we'll be able to manage a blend because it won't be a light switch where you turn it on and all of a sudden your attendance goes back to 100% of what it was in the previous year at these events. We will have to have a mix. And I think that mix will be an art that we've got to navigate where you try and blend the intimacy with the reach and you don't make the distinction of it's an either or. Can I ask, in terms of performance wise, what were your takeaways from Palooza in terms of how virtual events compare to physical events in terms of performance and conversion wise? We made this decision with 12 business days to go. And so we were faced with a lot of key decisions about how to execute this. And those decisions were ranged from how long do we make the event? <laughs> you know, Domapalooza had been a three-day event and we certainly knew we couldn't have three days of online material. So, you know, you have to make decisions about how long it's going to be at the basic end of the spectrum. But then you have decisions around what personas do I really need to satisfy? And I think most every physical event has a broad range of these personas. You've got executive people who want thought leadership. They want vision. They want to see roadmap. And you have the, the practitioners or the users who want to dive deep into the product. And so, you know, we made a lot of decisions trying to balance those two audiences. And we felt like from a performance standpoint, we felt really good about it. We typically have 2,500 to 3,000 people physically show up to Doma Palooza. And we had over 12,000 people watch our event. And, you know, they didn't watch all of it, but to have a 4X reach 
is pretty amazing, the day of the event. And another aspect of these physical events is they tend to be forcing functions from the vendor standpoint. They drive strategic decisions. They drive product to get things done and shipped. They drive big messaging decisions and partner ecosystem decisions and events and things like that. So you still want to use them to drive that forcing function and then kind of wring the value out of all that effort in an amplified way where you might have 3,000 people at an event if it's live, you're going to have 12,000 if it's virtual, and you can reach so many more people and your downstream nurture of that audience can really be tailored based on what were they interested in when they came to the event? What breakout sessions did they attend? What parts of the keynote did they watch? So it gives you a chance for a lot of downstream intimacy. So we've, you know, the jury's still out on close rates and ACV creation, those sorts of things that the enterprise sales cycle will take a while, but we were pretty happy with it. Can I ask, speaking of that move from physical to virtual, how are you thinking about, I spoke to PagerDuty last week and they mentioned their shift in marketing spend from physical to virtual. And I guess my question to you is, how are you thinking of shifting spend and the strategy around it in light of the pandemic? It's a decision that has a little bit of strategy involved, but it's become kind of a forced strategy. You know, I, I don't really have a strategic decision to make about how much I spend on events in the next four months because that decision has been made for me. There just aren't any physical events to attend. So you've got this balance of the strategy comes into play with how do you redeploy those funds? So how do you create the online equivalent of that reach and that intimacy in a completely digital environment? So we have shifted significant amounts of the event spend to digital programs. Some of those are webinars where you're trying to you know, replicate that in-person, that live experience. But some of it is just in increased ad spend where you're doing more search and more display, more syndicated content, et cetera, more email. And so we're absolutely doing everything we can to keep lead volume up, to keep the pipeline acceleration where we need it to be, because we don't want to make decisions that would make this crisis sort of a foregone conclusion or predestined. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you said they're up predestined. How do you think about avoiding making the crisis self-fulfilling? It's such an interesting topic because I lived through the recession. You know, I was working at Omniture when we went through the recession. Our CEO, of course, was there. Our CFO went through the recession at his company. And so you've got this tendency to evaluate scenarios in your head. And some of those scenarios are pretty awful. And the challenge is to not let those scenarios dictate action prematurely. So you want to really let the data talk. And so you start to look at early indicators. You start to dial in your magnifying glass on anything that would be a very early indicator, early, early indicator on your business. What's your web traffic? What is your lead rate, your rate of generating leads from that traffic? How are those leads turning into opportunities? How are those opportunities progressing through the pipeline? And you don't have a nine-month full sales cycle to watch these. You just do not have that much time. And so you've got to make decisions on early, early indication very quickly. Totally agree in terms of the speed there. I guess my question to you is like, I speak to a lot of SaaS companies today and they're going, hey, we're actually not affected by this. Our revenues are looking the same. Our customers are happy. And I kind of think you will find out most how your business is impacted when it comes to renewals, when it comes to churn and discounting that comes with those renewals. How would you advise founders who aren't seeing changes as of yet and are kind of unsure because they're expecting to see negative changes, but the data does 
doesn't show it yet. How would you advise them? When I sit with my marketing team several times a week, they read out a lot of data. And one of the questions I ask them at the end is, okay, so if you were living under a rock, if you if you had no access to news, how would you say the business was doing? And that's one of the factors that we use in determining whether or not we're going to increase or decrease spend. You know, these sorts of situations are so historic because they have no playbook. And the danger, I think, is to apply an old playbook to a new situation that is 100% unique. You can apply some judgment, but to think you can just cookie cutter a situation from the past and apply it to this situation, I believe is incorrect. So the advice that we're following is plan for the worst, Get those preparations in place in detail and know what steps you're going to take when you see the indications that you should take those steps. But don't take the steps too soon because I think you can predestine your situation in a very self-fulfilling way. Yeah, no, listen, I, I totally agree with you in terms of predestiny. And yeah, I think it's a very negative, cyclical mindset to get into. I do want to dive there into my favorite element of any episode, John. So I say a short statement and you give me your immediate thoughts. It's called the quick fire round. Are you ready to rock and roll? Exciting. Okay, so what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your time at Domo? I wish I had known better the complexity of the offering. Can I ask, what makes Josh the special leader that he is? I've worked with a few founders in my career, and I think founders are just different humans. They're wired different. Their ability to have a vision, to be doggedly attached to that vision is what makes them unique. And that is certainly the characteristic that I would say Josh has got is he can see things as they should be, have a complete irreverence for reality about <laughs> why that's hard and just keep persistently going after that. What's the hardest element of your role with Domo today, John? The hardest element is simplifying the offering into consumable chunks. You know, there was so much resource put into building the Domo platform and and it's so broad and so deep that the challenge is it can do so many things. And that's not what a buyer wants to hear. A buyer wants to hear, how does it solve my pain today, make me revenue, give me business impact? So distilling that broad, deep functionality into consumable chunks for personas is the process that we are really focused on because that's where the transformation is. Can I ask, what's the optimal relationship between chief strategy officer and CEO? I think the right CEO, strategic, chief strategic officer relationship has a lot of constructive tension in it. You've got to realize that the founder, at least speaking from my experience, you have to realize that the founder is in their position because they are extremely talented and unique in the ways that create businesses and create ideas and vision. The role of strategy is to try and distill that vision into an operational framework that the business can act on and grow over the long term and do it efficiently. And that tension is a powerful accelerant. So there's a lot of chemistry that's got to exist for sure. I love that constructive tension. I do want to finish it on my favorite, which is if you could change one thing about the world of SaaS today, what would it be? I think from an enterprise software SaaS standpoint, we just got to make it more usable for the end users. It's got to be simple, simple, simple. Totally agree with you in terms of the simplicity. But John, as I said, I've had so many great things, both about you and Josh from many different people on the show. So thank you so much for joining me today. And this has been so much fun. Thank you, Harry. It's been a pleasure. 
Such a pleasure to have John on the show there and absolutely love that discussion on the accelerant of change management. If you'd like to see more from John, you can find him on Twitter at Melatime. Likewise, it'd be great to welcome you behind the scenes here. You can do so on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. It would be great to see you there. But before we leave you today, I want to tell you a story that I'm sure most of you are well too well aware of. You've spent the last two weeks working on that big proposal. 14 days and 44 cups of coffee later, you're finally finished. The proposal's due by the end of the day and it's seven minutes to midnight. Here's the problem. When you go to submit it, you find out that your corporate password just expired, you're locked out of your account, the IT team is fast asleep, and the clock is ticking. MoveWorks takes the suspense right out of this story. MoveWorks is an AI platform that lives on messaging tools like Slack and Microsoft Teams. You chat with their AI to unlock your account, to get access to software, to find troubleshooting answers, and more, wherever you are and whenever you need help. MoveWorks understands your request no matter how you phrase it, then autonomously resolves the issue in seconds. That proposal, submitted within six minutes to spare. Check out moveworks.com to see how AI delivers instant IT support to employees anywhere and anytime. And speaking of seamless work there with MoveWorks, you have to check out Cordoba, the leading AI writing assistant built specifically for business needs in mind. These days, literally everyone within a company writes content. And because of this, it's hard for everyone to stay aligned and maintain consistency. With Cordoba, you can customize writing guidelines to your unique brand and get everyone at your company to write with the same style, terminology, and brand voice whenever and wherever they are writing content. For Sasta listeners, Cordoba is providing a 25% discount off the first year of their starter plan. You can sign up for a free trial and get this offer by visiting cordoba.com forward slash Sasta. And finally, we spend so much time lead sourcing, but fundamentally the quantity of leads does not matter unless you can convert them. And one of the best ways to do that is to collect and display reviews from your past customers. That's where Reviews.io come in. Reviews.io not only collects reviews from your happy customers, but it is also able to help you publish these reviews on Google and on your social media platform of choice. Reviews.io is a fully API-driven solution that can be fully customized around your company requirements, and Reviews.io is packed full of useful features, but one that I found the most useful is that they're able to tell me who my most powerful brand advocates are via the Reviews.io dashboard. Reviews.io is used by over 5,000 companies, including Brex, Opendoor, and Carfax, to name a few. As a special offer, Reviews.io is giving one month free, no risk to all listeners just use the promo code harry that's h-a-r-r-y as always i so appreciate all your support and i can't wait to bring you a fantastic episode next week